Abraham was poised to strike Isaac on this mount, Mount Moriah. And the Lord cried, stop. And the angel of the Lord was poised to strike Jerusalem right here in our text. And the Lord said, stop. And suspended there between heaven and earth on a Roman cross, we can behold the man, the one for whom the knife plunge did not stop. Welcome back to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 60, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for joining us. Well, I want to take some time to wish you and yours a happy Thanksgiving. Even in these pressing times, I hope you've been able to carve some time out with your family and loved ones and to enjoy the company with one another, exchanging ways in which you're thankful and what you are thankful for. I thank you, our listeners, for taking time to listen to this podcast. It's a joy for me to hear the feedback from you and to know that you care deeply for theological matters and for the ways in which Mid-America Reform Seminary seeks to train our students to address some of these issues. Continuing today in our series of chapel messages from the faculty, Dr. Alan Strange will speak on 2 Samuel 24 and the census of David. Take a listen. I'm going to read uh, all of 2 Samuel 24. Last chapter there, all of 2 Samuel 24. This is God's Word. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it, but why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Zidon and came to the fortresses of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites, and they went, out, uh, they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. 
And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I've sinned and I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. By the way, I'm pronouncing this as it is in Chronicles because it's easier to pronounce Ornan than this. And Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. When Ornan looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Ornan went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Ornan said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant, David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people? Then Ornan said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Ornan gives to the king. And Ornan said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. The king said to Ornan, No, I will buy it from you for a price. I'll not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Let's just pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. Help us to glory in all of its wonder. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the Thanksgiving season, and that's sort of the way I'm thinking this morning, we often think of those to whom we owe much. I'm grateful personally for those who have shaped me theologically and homiletically. For the former, I think especially of Dick Gaffin and Sinclair Ferguson. For the latter, I think of Ed Clowney, Tim Keller, and Ray Dillard especially. You may not know that last name so much, um, but Christ-centered, gospel-focused, Old Testament preaching was Ray Dillard's gift, and he preached a great sermon on this passage to which I'm indebted for numerous insights, though it's my sermon. This is a good passage to ponder, I think, especially for seminarians learning to preach an Old Testament narrative. It raises questions about how David sinned in taking a census and why the Lord responded as he did. A passage like this invites, to be sure, psychologizing psychologizing the text. Well, we want to resist that and use a right understanding from broader context, particularly in terms of biblical theology and a clear redemptive historical approach, as well as the immediate context, to understand why David did what he did and the Lord did what he did. So we see here, by way of a theme, just this simple note, that the Lord chastens sin. We see here that the Lord chastens sin and that's developed as we consider, first of all, the reason that this census was sinful. Because as we read through this, you may think that. I certainly do. Why, why, what's going on here? What's the sin? So we'll think about the reason that it was sinful and then the response to the sinful census. Well, how did David sin here in taking a census? I mean, I worked for the Census Bureau back in 1980. Was I sinning? I, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Some people... Uh, this was a this was a last follow up, and some of the people who 
whose houses I went to certainly thought I was. <laughs> they didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> they thought I was sinning. And I was, it's interesting to be in such a position because you really hear what everybody doesn't like about the government. But um, the Lord commanded periodic senses, uh, Exodus 30, 11, and 12. And I should say here, there's no evidence that this, what happens here, the, the response of the Lord is about a failure on David's part to collect the half shekel per head taxed. That doesn't seem to really be at issue. Four other kings, in fact, in Chronicles, take senses without consequences. So isn't this census on David's part simply the action of a wise king? Somebody just doing his job? Doesn't he need to know the numbers to govern properly? But don't be unclear here. This census was not like that census I was a part of, which was for governing purposes. No, this census from Dan to Beersheba, under Joab and the other army chiefs, was to determine the number of fighting men in Israel. Verse 9 makes that very clear. This is about the fighting men in Israel. Who can bear the sword? And th in other words, this is a prelude to war. You don't do this just for, you know, because you can't think of anything else to do. You do this as a prelude to going to war. Notice, and this is, I think, striking in the text, the normally bellicose Joab, there's one of, you know, strangest, you guys like to make fun of my words, there's one, bellicose, warlike, right? Be Joab is a warlike, Joab would as soon kill you as look at you. I mean, this was not a guy to be messed with. What, what's going on? Has he become a peacenik all of a sudden? You know, no, David, don't do this. What? You wouldn't expect Joab to be objecting here. Uh, he doesn't want to go to war. Not because, you know, he's singing, give peace a chance or anything like that. No. The parallel account, in fact, in First Chronicles 21.6 says that this was so abhorrent to Joab that he didn't, he didn't count Levi and Benjamin. He, he didn't want to do He stopped it. And if you, you look there, the numbering is a bit different. Uh, it also says there in 21.1, First Chronicles, that that Satan incited David, but that's all for a, another day. We won't get into any of that here. Sorry. Um, Joab's resistance, coupled with God's response of judgment, makes it clear, since it doesn't appear obvious on the surface that David overtly transgressed, that he had. And, of course, verse 10 makes it very clear. He, he confesses that he's done wrong. Well, here the commentators and the preachers have a field day psychologizing. What was David's sin? What was his sin? And it's, it's, it's a kind of fun to see all the things they say. Most of the better ones say things that are problems, in other words. They, things that, that if you're doing it, yeah, you shouldn't be doing it. In other words, a, a, lot, of the, a lot of the approach to this is let's figure out what David was, was doing and preach, go and don't do likewise. <laughs> go and don't do likewise. Well, um, maybe he wasn't trusting God, some say. Um, did he pray about this beforehand? We don't see that he prayed. Well, we don't see lots of things in a text. I mean, the fact we don't see that he prayed doesn't mean that's what it was, and thus he wasn't really trusting God. Another one, maybe it was desire for glory. Maybe he was even going to do, when he got the numbers, the reports, the Nebuchadnezzar kind of thing. You know, look at my kingdom. Such a great kingdom. And then he gets struck. There's that lycanthropy. He becomes a wolf-like animal, whatever that, you know, grazing. Maybe it was something like that. Maybe David is too self-reliant. 
Um, one commentator says, you know, he might have had pride. Wow, that's, a, that's an interesting guess. Somebody has pride. Um, who doesn't? Uh, and I remember once saying, well, Paul had pride. And they said, well, why would you say that? He had a thorn in the flesh there to remind him that it isn't our strength. We're weak, and it's in our weakness that God's strength is made perfect. We need to always be. The question isn't, are we proud? Are we are we greedy? Are we these things? The question is, are we are we walking in these things? Or are we repenting of these things? I mean, we have these things. The question is, do we repent of them? So I could go on here. I, I'll give you one more. I'll give you one more. Um, you, this is an interesting one. Some will say, well, in good divine warrior fashion, right? The Lord often preferred to save by a few. All glory to Him. He doesn't like the big numbers. And maybe David relied on numbers like our church growth friends. This is a church growth error, clearly. And that's the kind of thing that appeals to people in my tradition, the OPC, because we often glory in having but a few. So it makes us feel good. We're very righteous. We just got a few and he wants a lot and we don't want a lot. <laughs> don't worry, we're not going to have a lot. But <laughs> let me... Let me encourage you to resist this sort of guessing. Let's look to the context, narrower and broader, to, to try to see why this was sinful. In the more immediate Samuel King's Chronicles context, the writers make it clear, Dillard says, go out of their way, to make it clear that David has here all of the land that God has promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, so much of, if you've been reading through this, you're reading through, once you get into the land with Joshua, you're reading about conquest, 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 right? It's all happened here. It's under David at this late part of his life, and then his son Solomon, that you have a kind of Pax Hebraica. You have the fullness of the land. You have every man dwelling under his own vine and fig tree. It's a wonderful, blessed time. So in the broader context, you can see, say, Genesis 15. Remember where God makes the covenant there with Abraham and his descendants. And he says in 18 to 20, I'm not going to read it, but he says, you, I'm going to give you from the great river of Egypt to the Euphrates. And he says the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites. They've got that. They have conquered that land. It's theirs. Deuteronomy 2 also, you could bring that in if you want to talk about something like the Treaty of the Great King. Now, I realize there's a lot of controversy about these days about what is the precise status of Mendenhall's thesis, Klein's thesis, and so forth. But I think it's clear from Deuteronomy 2 that God is saying, in a, in a kind of sense, I give you this. You Israel, if you want to say Israel's the vassal here that the liege lord is, is giving this to. But he says... I'm not giving you the land of the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. He makes it clear what he's not giving them. So God has said pretty clearly in what comes before 2 Samuel 24, this is what's yours and leave the rest alone. So we see David here and I think we see his sin. Israel has achieved its biblical boundaries and David is preparing for war. David, of course, is representative of Israel um, as the king. So all Israel is going to suffer for this because he's he's representing them, just like we all suffer from, from Adam's first sin, the guilt of that. We suffer from David's sin, even as we're blessed by Christ's active obedience on our behalf. 
David here apparently wants more than God has given. He's not thankful. Rather, he expresses ingratitude and discontent. He, you could think of it this way. We, he's had this before. He's, he's wanted a woman that God hadn't given, right? When he should have been going to war. And now he wants land God hasn't given when he shouldn't be going to war. He can't seem to get that together. Um, just like Adam wanted fruit that wasn't given, that wasn't his, in contrast to Christ, who gave up what was rightly his. There's that beautiful contrast you get in Philippians 2. The glory and praise of heaven, that was his. The old version says it wasn't robbery. The reason it wasn't robbery for him to have it was because it was his. But he gave it up to live and die for us. David had Israel's full land grant and it wasn't enough. And I don't have to say too much about this with respect to all of you. We have far more than David did, right? Not only all the natural and spiritual gifts that he's given us, but we have the fullness of this by way of being the Pentecostal church. We're those upon whom the ends of the world have come. We're those who have this fullness. Uh, Christ has come in the fullness of time, and we have with him received all things, yet we often want more. More acclaim, more money, more gifts, more sex, more comfort and ease. Things God hasn't given us in our circumstances, we want it all. And yet, what haven't we been given in Christ? We've been given salvation full and free when we deserve condemnation. I'll just end this whole part, and this is the big part, this first part. We truly lack nothing, yet we often yearn for more. Well, I think David did. We do. The response of God to David's sin here is sobering and encouraging. It's sobering because we see that God chastens sin. He chastens it in our lives to sanctify us. But of course, he remembers mercy here. It's encouraging because he doesn't destroy Israel. Israel deserves to be destroyed. We deserve to be destroyed. And yet we see in the midst of wrath, God remembering mercy even as he chastens sin. So how does he chasten it? Well, he gives David those three options, right? For punishment, verse 13. Uh, David makes the request that he does in verse 14, which is, I think, rather self-seeking. Don't let me fall into the hand of man. Think of it this way. Here is Israel's shepherd. David is Israel's shepherd. And he says, in effect, let the sheep die, not the shepherd. Don't let me fall into the hands of men. And so 70,000 die until David, a bit late, cries out. Verse 17, he said, what have they done? Well, that's you're a bit late to make that comment. That, this has been going on, David. Um, no sin is private. We're reminded of that here in David's... David made this decision, right? Um, we saw with the sin of Achan. Achan was just a private person, but his sin wasn't private. Particularly the sins of the king as representative of his people is not private. And we say there's just a beautiful contrast here with the greater David, the, the true shepherd of the sheep. Now David is in a sense saying, let the sheep die but not the shepherd. And Jesus comes, the great shepherd of the sheep, and gives his life for the sheep. So we said, what a con we say, what a contrast with him who well represents us, unlike Adam or David or anybody else, who well represents us in his life and who in his death dies the death we deserve to die. Well, we see remarkable things here in the, in the, in the broader context, in the narrower and broader context. The prophet Gad, as a part of this now, this 70,000 have died, 
and the Lord has relented, and, and, and Gad comes to David and tells him to raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite, where the Lord stayed the hand of the angel who was poised to strike Jerusalem. So he's going to strike Jerusalem, and the Lord stops him there. And David buys this threshing floor. We read about it. And, of course, there's all the fun of ancient Near Eastern bargaining. You know, you love it. When, when a guy says, never mind, just take it, you know he's going to end up getting a really good price for it. That, <laughs> that seems to be how this works. But at any rate, David buys it not for, not for a trifle, and he does build an altar. David buys it and builds an altar. But as the old Ronco commercials used to say, there's more. First Chronicles 22.1 says this. This is what David said, buying this threshing floor. He says, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So not just an altar at that point where the angel stopped and sheathed the sword, as it were, but this is where the temple will be built. Now, you know David, he's a man of war. He's not allowed to build it. But his son Solomon will build the temple. Where? Right here on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So lots of animals are going to be sacrificed here. Second Chronicles 3.1 says this about that. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place the Lord had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So there we learn a little piece of extra information. This is Mount Moriah. So this threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite that David buys, sacrifices his own, will become the site of the temple, and the site of the temple is Mount Moriah. And of course, you know, you're all thinking, what's the significance of that? Well, we go back to Abraham again. We were in, we were in Genesis 15. Now we're in Genesis 22. This is where he goes to sacrifice. He's told to go and sacrifice Isaac. So it's on Mount Moriah, on this mount, that the aborted sacrifice of Isaac is taken up in the slaughter of countless rams, goats, bulls, lambs, when the temple is built. But such sacrifices could never of themselves atone for the sins of you and me, of humans. We need the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Some have speculated, and this is that, that with the second temple, and that's built. Moriah is outside the gate and thus Golgotha. I'll let the Old Testament guys figure that out. Whether or not this site became Calvary's Hill, as some have suggested, this is what we know. Abraham was poised to strike Isaac on this mount, Mount Moriah, and the Lord cried, stop. And the angel of the Lord was poised to strike Jerusalem right here in our text. And the Lord said, stop and suspended there between heaven and earth on a Roman cross, we can behold the man, the one for whom the knife plunge did not stop, the one who took the awful blow we deserve and fully satisfied justice. David said, strike the sheep. But the Lord said, as Zechariah noted, strike the shepherd who have done no wrong so all we ungrateful sheep who have gone astray might be gathered back into the fold. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a cause for endless thanksgiving. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Seen in the substitutionary sacrifices of all, that's what they were pointing to, 
the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite right when David bought it and sacrificed and then when Solomon built the temple there but ultimately in the death of the one who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us. The one who was the true victim, the true sacrifice for our sin. That's something for which to be truly thankful. And this is something you can encourage your people about. Even if people are going through, sometimes at Thanksgiving people say, what do I have to be thankful for? I, I lost my wife. I, 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 I'm, I've got a terrible job. I, I, I have all these difficulties. Um, even in the midst of suffering and loss, hardship and pain, we have this one who for us took that awful blow, the blow that none in heaven or earth could bear but God. Amen. Amen. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a cause for endless thanksgiving. This is what I'm thankful for today, and I hope it's what you are thankful for as well. Next week, adjunct professor of ministerial studies, Reverend Danny Patterson, brings us a message from Psalm 124. So stay tuned for that. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu on YouTube and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to search and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.